Hi, I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Eric, and this is Speaking of Race, a podcast that takes on our misconceptions about what science says about race. And last time, we began a series discussing misconceptions surrounding race and health. Guys, is it just me, or do there seem to be more misconceptions about this one thing than just about anything? You might be right. And the scary thing is, of course, misconceptions here can have very real life and death consequences. Yeah, last time we began way back talking about American slavery and the ways in which the understanding of black bodies as somehow being biologically different from white bodies led to all kinds of terrible, terrible mistreatment and lack of appropriate medical care. But in my experience, one of the most misunderstood issues in this whole race and health thing is the question of sickle cell disease. So I want to talk about that today. Yeah, I see that same thing. I think when we attempt to say that race is sociocultural, but it's not biological, people always come right back with, well, but what about sickle cell? Totally. That's because it's thought of, at least in the U.S., as a black disease, right? Yeah, I learned about that while I was teaching about race. Most of the 15 years I taught the race class at the University of Alabama, I gave a pretest to see what students were thinking coming into the class. And many of those students had had anthropology classes before, so they came in with the notion that race was cultural, not biological. But over a third of them still thought that even though races aren't genetic categories, they get that question right, there are diseases that are specific to one race or another. And when asked what diseases, guess what they said? Well, since we're discussing sickle cell today, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that they said uh, frigatriscodecophobia. Whoa, what is that? <laughs> it's uh, fear, of it's fear of Friday, Friday the, the 13th. 13th. <laughs> what? Yeah. Who do you know that? Everybody knows that. I don't know that. <laughs> Can you say it again? Frigatriscodecophobia. Yeah. What? <laughs> hey, listeners, you've learned something new. We are Our work here is done. Yeah, so uh, same thing in my classes, of course, because I took over that class from Jim. The sickle cell question is a perennial one. Can I start by asking a history question? Do we even know how old sickle cell is? Well, that's a tougher question than you think, actually. And it's still hotly debated. But we do know there's almost certainly mention of illnesses that are probably sickle cell in classic Greek and Roman writings. But the problem is that those symptoms can't really be separated out from other causes of anemia, like the thalassemias, for example. So some people think the first identifiable case in the U.S. might have been in 1846 in the case of a runaway slave who was executed, but the evidence is so limited there that I'm not sure that we can really date it to that time. Okay. And as to how old the disease itself is, the origin of sickle cell, there's a current argument going on based on different genetic interpretations with estimates ranging from around 7,000 to around 22,000 years ago. Oh, so uh, is that where we're going to start today? Are we going to start uh, 22,000 years ago? Oh. No, I think we should start on September 15th, 1904. Oh, well, that's much more manageable. <laughs> okay. I'm glad because I was worried that we'd be going for five, six, seven, eight, nine hours. But anyway, how do we know why such a specific date? Why September 15th, 1904? We start with that because on September 15th, 1904, a 20-year-old Grenadian Walter Clement Knoll arrived in New York City. He was on his way to attend the Chicago College of Dental Surgery, but he stopped during his journey because he had a sore on his ankle that was bothering him. After his ankle had healed up, he continued on to Chicago, 
Oh, wait. Okay. What's the deal with the sore on his ankle? That doesn't seem important enough to start this story with, I guess. Well, leg ulcers are a really common complication of sickle cell and some other kinds of anemia. I know that, but I have no idea why Jim is starting with this particular guy. Well, I, come on, guys. I haven't finished the story yet. Give me a <laughs> okay, chance. Okay, fair enough. Noel made it to Chicago to attend dental school, but by Thanksgiving of that year, he was having trouble breathing. He muscled through until the day after Christmas when he walked across the street from where he was staying to go to school to the Presbyterian Hospital in Chicago. There he was seen by an intern by the name of Ernest Irons, one of the real unsung heroes in the sickle cell story, who took a medical history and performed a standard physical and blood and urine exams. And when he did the blood smear, Irons saw in his words, many pear-shaped and elongated forms, some small. This he brought to the attention of his attending physician, James Herrick. About a week later, after doing another blood analysis, Irons drew out a rough sketch of these red blood cells, and these turn out to be the first depiction of sickle cells that we know of. Oh, okay. So 1904 Chicago, that's when we get our first real medical scientific documentation of sickle cell then. You understand the world of publication, right? I mean, I know you're (laughs) part of that. Not exactly, Eric. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Irons and Herrick followed several of these episodes, what we now know are sickle cell episodes with Noel over the next several years, but they never came up with a specific diagnosis and they lost contact with him before he left Chicago. Okay. In 1907, Noel graduated from the dental school and he returned to Grenada to practice dentistry where he died nine years later. Ah, so it's 1907 where we get the real documentation of sickle cell. Well, not quite. Herrick finally wrote up the case in the process, barely acknowledging Ernest Irons, and published it in 1910 with the title Peculiar Elongated and Sickle-Shaped Red Blood Corpuscles in a Case of Severe Anemia. So 1910. Now we finally get real documentation of sickle cell? Well, not quite as its own specific disease, you eager beaver. I'm not a beaver. I'm a duck. The beavers are Oregon (laughs) State. I'm the University of Oregon, people. You overpriced Nike sneakers, you. (laughs) (laughs) That's fair. No, no. It it took several more cases, including one based on a case in an African-American woman from Virginia published in 1911, with the same title that Herrick used. Aha, so 1911, then. And then later in 1915, two doctors at Washington University in St. Louis published their examination of another case with the same symptoms as those that had been described by Herrick. They also speculated about the inherited nature of the disease because by then they learned that their patient had three siblings who also showed the same signs of anemia. And what's more, laboratory examination of the father's blood appeared to resemble the patient's blood, that funny pear-shaped red blood cell. Also, every one of these individuals that we've talked about so far was of African descent. Okay. Okay. So by 1915, physicians are beginning to recognize that regardless of these sort of variable symptoms, this appears to be some kind of disease of the blood that they're looking at. And then if they learn about the siblings and the father here, they figured out that it's heritable. And I bet, given what you just said, they also began to recognize a racial connection at this point too, didn't they? 
Yes, because all of these cases in the early medical literature were on people of African descent. And also there's something else significant going on. These two docs at WashU were working with an anatomy professor by the name of Victor Emmel, who designed the test for the cellular identification of sickle cell. He published that test in 1917. While he was trying to look at the cells under a microscope, he came up with a blood test by preparing cell cultures with blood smears, sealing with Vaseline between two glass slides. It turns out that that Vaseline seal deoxygenates the sample and accelerates the process of sickling. So it literally was producing sickling in his slides. Didn't that kind of mess up the whole enterprise? Yes, it did uh, to a certain extent. But what he found as a result of that was that if he used this technique of putting the blood in the Vaseline between the glass slides, then blood cells from people who had no external symptoms of anemia, he could still find sickled cells in them. So, for instance, the father of the siblings in the case that we just talked about, their father's blood showed the same kind of sickling shapes but the father had no visible symptoms of sickle cell anemia. Emil published this, and he said that he was seeing a tendency to sickle. He indicated that it was a latent disease in the father's blood. Okay, so at first the blood was normal, and the father wasn't showing any symptoms of being anemic. But then this Vaseline thing turns up some sickling cells after a while. So I guess Emil's idea is that the sickling must have been there. It was just sort of hiding. Exactly. That's just what he thought it was. And then two other groups started using this technique so that by the early 1920s, they had decided that sickle cell anemia was inherited as a simple Mendelian dominant trait. Okay, hold on there, cowboy. We probably need to explain what a Mendelian dominant trait is. Ooh, listeners at home, now's the time to grab a pencil and a sheet of paper. We're going to draw some Punnett squares. Goody, Ooh. goody, goody. Got to well, look through the square with the little plus in the middle and the big T, little T. Anyway. <laughs> a Mendelian dominant refers to a characteristic that's under the control of a single gene with two forms, or as we geneticists like to say, alleles, one that's dominant and one that's recessive. If someone gets one each of the two different forms, so if they have one dominant and one recessive form, then that person would have the characteristics show the trait of the dominant of the two forms. That's what we historians like to call heterozygous. <laughs> <Ta -da. laughs> that was a funny historian joke. Very good. Okay. Very good. All right. Jim, but wait. it is, though. You're right. It's heterozygous, but I'm, I'm I'm confused. I always thought that sickle cell was a recessive trait, not a dominant one. Uh, yeah, you're getting way ahead of yourself. We're we're still in the 20s here. It's not until the late 1940s that sickle cell is demonstrated to be a recessive. Okay, I mean, it doesn't make sense, but I guess in another way, it does kind of make sense. Well, they could see it in the blood, you know. It took until after World War II with a combination of different lines of research that people began to understand that sickle cell wasn't a race-based Mendelian dominant disease. And I think somebody should tell Mr. Murdoch, my high school biology teacher slash volleyball coach, Ooh. because I'm pretty sure he taught us that it was in like... 1990. You might want to go back and redo that high school biology course again. <laughs> I, I don't think you could get in, Eric. All right. Okay. I would say that was a sick burn, but okay. I went to public school. We didn't have to take entrance tests. Okay. I risk my case. <laughs> okay. So 
back to Emil's Vaseline test. Did it become a way of sort of like seeing if someone was passing as white when they were really black? Because Whoa. by this point, they thought this was a black disease. What? I don't. What do you mean? I don't. I don't get what you're even asking, Joe. I, I know it, it sounds weird if a blood test on a white person found sickle cell. Oh, okay. I got it. So they thought that it meant that there were probably African ancestors somewhere in someone's lineage. And that actually makes me think of something else that I wondered about for a long time. You know, um, all those inter anti-interracial marriage bills that began spreading across the U.S. right after World War I. Mm -hmm. And part, part of those marriage bills, they had to take blood tests in order to get a marriage certificate. All that started right at the same time. I wonder if that's a, just a coincidence that this test came out at the same time that allowed you to see whether somebody had sickling, even if they were white. Probably not, but there's so much bleeding over from eugenics at that point in time that it's hard to assign specific blame. Oh, yeah, okay. did, did you get that pun, bleeding over? That was good. Nice. Thank you. Good, good blood <laughs> joke. Okay, so summary here. In the first couple decades it was studied, it seems like all the arrows are pointing to sickle cell being an exclusively black disease. So no wonder everybody thinks this is the case. The idea has been around for like 100 plus years now. Yes, it has. And that's where all of this comes from. At least that's the part of the story that's been repeated. But what we don't talk about is that there were other scientists that were questioning this interpretation not long after Emil's test was popularized. So while scientists in Chicago and St. Louis saw a connection between sickle cell and blackness, Thomas Cooley, working in Detroit, saw sickle cell in European immigrants from the Mediterranean region. But, but remember, uh, Emil's technique caused cells to sickle in some people that didn't have any symptoms, so it raised flag about possible false positives for sickle cell. Oh, well, well... Wait, what are, you, uh, what are you owing about? You sound excited there. Well, I mean, I was about to get happy right then, like... You know, maybe people are going to see that the experiments were probably a little flawed. And so maybe they should give up on their preconceived notions about what they thought was going on and like come up with different experiments or drop the racist science stuff. But, you know, then I got another feeling that this is just the point in the episode where I'm going to get my hopes up that people began to realize that their racial prejudices aren't actually borne out by science. But then one of you was then going to dash my hopes, kind of like, when, happens. you know, Charlie Brown is running for the football and then Lucy pulls it away at the last second. Am I right? I love that cartoon every fall <laughs> when it comes in. Yeah, this is indeed that time of the episode. Aha, let let me it. pull the football away from your foot and let you bust your butt. Basically, <laughs> Cooley's findings were seen as aberrations. Ah, in fact. See. The very next year after he published his findings, a much more prominent study came out and said that sickle cell was peculiar to the Negro race. Well, uh, at least I didn't get my hopes up this time. But, but wait, we have to back up. Because a minute ago, Jim, I asked about them thinking that it was a Mendelian dominant trait. And you said that, yeah, that's what they thought. But by the 1930s, they had to have realized they were wrong. I mean, if... If sickle cell was a dominant trait, like brown eyes are a dominant trait, then wouldn't we have a lot more people running around with sickle cell? Yeah, yeah. I mean, now we sometimes talk about it being a recessive trait in that old Mendelian sense. So everyone pull out those Punnett squares again. Yay, Punnett squares. <laughs> so it turns out you only actually have sickle cell disease, sickle cell anemia, that is, if you're unlucky enough to get two recessive copies, which we draw as S's. 
So you would get one S from one parent and one from the other. And that doesn't actually happen that often. You can have one copy of the recessive gene and you can be a carrier of sickle cell, but you wouldn't actually have the disease with all of its full-blown symptoms. That's called having sickle cell trait. But I, I don't know actually when that transition from thinking it was dominant to thinking it was recessive actually happened. That's why you guys keep me around and why you pay me the big bucks. Wait, you're... You're making money on this podcast? Are we like running ads for toothbrushes and mattresses and underwear now? <laughs> Why am I not making any money on this? Hey, I'm retired. I need extra income. Anyway, yeah, it, right. it took until after World War II to finally figure this stuff out. The definitive statement on sickle cell genetics didn't come until the geneticist James Neal published the results of his study in 1949. In it, he examined the blood of 42 parents of 29 patients who had sickle cell anemia. And he found that every one of the parents had red blood cells that would sickle in the lab. If sickle cell had been caused by a dominant gene, only one parent per patient would need to carry it to pass it on. And based on its frequency of occurrence in the general population, the likelihood that all 42 of the parents that he tested would have it was somewhere around one in 100,000. So clearly it couldn't be a dominant factor. Exactly. But then it became the first molecular disease when Linus Pauling became involved. Linus Pauling. Oh, I know who Linus Pauling was. Linus Pauling discovered how chemical bonding worked, and he won a Nobel Prize for that in 1954. And then he went on to discover the alpha helix structure of proteins. And he would have figured out the DNA structure too, but the U.S. revoked his passport because they thought he was a communist, so he couldn't get to a conference to see Rosalind Franklin's x-ray photographs of DNA, which is what Watson and Crick did get to see. But uh, then he won another Nobel Prize in 1964 okay. in opposition to... Okay, and, clearly. And then he went nuts on vitamin C. And then he got crazy on vitamin C. That's what? right. Okay, okay. So you've made your point. Historian who knows all about Linus Pauling. Thank you. <laughs> that was my one contribution. So in 1949, know. Pauling and his colleagues used a technique called electrophoresis to show that the hemoglobin molecules were different for those without sickle cell, the so-called normals, those with one copy of the gene, the heterozygotes or sickle cell trait, and those with sickle cell anemia. Ten years later, in 1959, it was demonstrated that the chemical difference between the normal and the sickle cell hemoglobin was due to a shift in the sixth amino acid from glutamic acid to valine in part of the protein that makes up hemoglobin. And it wasn't until the mid-1970s that that shift from glutamic acid to valine was found to be the result of a point mutation in the DNA from adenine to thymine. So we had the complete molecular basis worked out by 1977. Okay, okay. So we have, we have the biochemistry in place. We've got the genetics in place at this point, but we still have to tie this all to the question of race. Yeah, I thought we were trying I mean, to untie it from race. Right, exactly. We keep saying that race is not linked to this particular mutation that shifts glutamic acid to valine to make sickle selling. Sickling cell... Sickle cell. I don't know that we need to put a gerund in it, but we haven't actually connected all the dots. Like, so if sickle cell isn't a racial disease, why does it seem to affect so many more black people in the U.S.? Oh, I love this part. This is where we get to talk about malaria. That's sadistic, Joe. Who loves malaria? Well, no one. But you know, from a human evolution and a public health perspective, it's one of the most important diseases ever. That's because it's so widespread. It's often deadly. 
It exacerbates health disparities because it disproportionately affects the most impoverished in the most impoverished parts of the world. And until just a few weeks ago, there was no vaccine for it at all. It's disturbing that you can even hear like the love of it in your voice. I don't voice. love it, Meanie. It's, it's a damn important public health topic and I study public health. But, but wait, Joe, something you said there is a key to what we're talking about. It's predominant in equatorial countries. This, Eric, is the answer to your question about why it is that sickle cell looks racial, even though it's not. Okay. Um, so there's more mosquitoes on the equator. Help, help me out. I don't, I don't know. Okay. Just after World War II, several people were hanging out in East Africa. I don't know what for, but while they were there, they noticed that people with sickle cell trait, remember trait isn't the disease, trait is just one copy of the gene. These people with sickle cell trait had fewer malaria parasites in their blood lab work than people with no copies of the sickle cell gene. A.C. Allison, a South African physician, while he was doing graduate work at Oxford, traveled to Kenya to collect blood samples for genetic analysis. He noticed that the sickle cell trait was more common in parts of Africa where malaria was more prevalent. And he discovered that malaria parasites were less common in individuals who had the sickle cell trait. And here's a quote from his 1954 paper. Eric? <laughs> What? Eric, you, you have to fulfill your contractual quota of reading at least one quote per episode. Go. We, we have a contract? Wait, I, I'm learning so many things. Is this where you're getting all your podcast fortunes from, Jim? There's such a thing as podcast fortunes. I thought this was just a time and money drain. Just read it. <laughs> okay, okay. Ah, here we go. Here's the right page. It is concluded that the abnormal erythrocytes of individuals with the sickle cell trait are less easily parasitized by P. falciparum than our normal erythrocytes. Hence, those who are heterozygous for the sickle cell gene will have a selective advantage in regions where malaria is hyperendemic. This fact may explain why the sickle cell gene remains common in these areas in spite of the elimination of genes in patients dying of sickle cell anemia. There it is, Eric. That's the answer to your question. Okay, so that quote had so much jargon in it that there is no... People's eyes are going to glass over as I'm reading it. That's why I hate being the reader. Oh, come on. Okay, okay. <laughs> there there are a few key terms in there, especially selective advantage and hyperendemic. Do you want to decode these with me a little bit, Jim? Okay, so Allison was describing a phenomenon that fancy rich podcast barons like myself called <laughs> heterozygote advantage. All right, so I know that heterozygote means that you have a copy of normal, and then you have a copy of sickle cell, using that old Mendelian terminology. Exactly. And in an environment where life-threatening malaria is constant, individuals who have one copy of the sickle cell gene, sickle cell trait, have a malaria survival advantage over people who just have normal hemoglobin. Okay, so if I, here's my handy-dandy Punnett square again, and if I get my big A for normal and my S for sickle cell, and I have AA, that's actually bad in this case because malaria. Right. So if your blood's totally normal and you have no sickle cell trait or disease, you're going to get malaria and you're going to have a hard time having kids or, you know, surviving because malaria can be so deadly and you have no extra protection. Okay. But if I have SS, that's also bad, right? Right, because that's having sickle cell disease, not just sickle cell trait, and that also has a low life expectancy. 
And like that guy, Noel, you're going to get some sores on your ankles. Ouch. Gross. But but yes. So what we're saying is in an environment like equatorial Western Africa, where malaria is really endemic, hyper endemic, you're getting kind of squeezed from both sides, squeezed on one side from malaria and on the other side from sickle cell. But if you happen to have one copy of the sickle cell gene, so you have sickle cell trait, you're doing well because you've got some natural immunity against malaria and you aren't likely to suffer sort of sickle cell disease symptoms. And that can make the difference between life and death. Okay. So I get that part. Lots of malaria in Western Africa at the equator means that sickle cell is a disease of people belonging to countries like Benin and Nigeria and Senegal. But I don't understand how this is helping the argument that it's not a black disease. Malaria isn't a lot of areas around the equator, but that's not the only place. Malaria also is very high around the Persian Gulf and in India. There's a big clue about where else it is in the word itself, malaria. Oh, from Italian for bad air. Exactly. And sickle cell can also be found, therefore, in places around the Mediterranean, like Thomas Cooley said back in the 1920s, places like southern Italy and Greece, in addition to places like Turkey, parts of the Arabian Peninsula, in addition to India, and much of sub-Saharan Africa, but not southern Africa. So the point here is sickle cell isn't a disease that's essential to blackness. It's an equatorial disease that's there in part as an adaptation to another disease, malaria. Ironically, hints of what we're just laying out here were, were published in 1942. Wait, did you guys know 1942? that? 1942? That was before a lot of the stuff that we talked about. Yeah, so there was this guy, Julian Herman Lewis. He was a guy who had an MD, PhD, dual degree from University of Chicago, and he's the first African-American to have that combination of degrees ever, as far as I know. He wrote a book called The Biology of the Negro in 1942, where he tried to convince people that many of the so-called racial diseases were, in fact, caused by culture and history and not essential biological qualities. Yeah, and those ideas percolated through into the 1950s, and a lot of people like Allison were writing about this. And finally, the anthropologist Frank Livingston ran with this idea about malaria selection on sickle cell. And he drew evidence from archaeology, from linguistics and culture history to show how malaria and sickle cell overlap in West Africa. And he went on to give an account of how malaria became extremely common in equatorial Africa based on the archaeological history of the area with agriculturalists thousands of years ago leaving water in open fields that they had cleared to grow their crops in that the mosquitoes then used to breed in the water and agriculture creating stable human host populations that the malaria parasite could thrive on. So Livingston showed how the frequency of sickle cell form of the hemoglobin gene spread as an adaptation to malaria along with the spread of agriculture. So it was kind of a co-evolution of biology and culture. Okay, well, when you put it like that, Jim, this sounds to me like a pretty solid example of natural selection still working in humans. Was that paper of Livingston's in, what, 1958? Was that the first well-documented case study of that sort of thing? That's one of the reasons why that's the most frequently cited paper in anthropology today, even. And the extra benefit of teaching that example is that once I get that idea across in class, students really begin to understand why sickle cell isn't just an African genetic disease. 
Nope. <laughs> nope. I mean, I was tracking with you there, but you lost me again. We said that sickle cell isn't essential to people from Africa, but the only example we've given is from Africa. So how does this show that it's not a black disease? Actually, Jim gave me a really easy thought experiment that I think helps everyone understand how contingent the story of sickle cell is. Yeah, Joe, you should walk us through this. Okay, so in order to know about how sickle cell is thought of as a black disease, you have to know a little bit of history. And uh, the physicians and anatomists who claimed it was a black disease in the 20s through the 1950s just really didn't bother thinking about American history. Uh-huh. See? See? Why am I not surprised? <laughs> so historian, do some history. At the okay. height of the transatlantic slave trade, what do we know about where most slaves came from? I mean, the, the area that is called the Slave Coast, the northern point was around the country of Senegal, but then it kind of curved down around the curve of West Africa, all the way down to Angola in the south. That's like uh, about 3,000 miles of West African coastline. Okay. And about how many people from this region made it to the U.S.? Well, about 4 million or so came to the Caribbean, and then there's about another half million that came directly to cities like Charleston and Mobile and Boston and New Orleans, either directly from Africa or came to the United States through the Caribbean. Okay, so first of all, it's really remarkable that the vast majority of the millions of African Americans in North America are descendants of those few hundred thousand people. But here's the thought experiment. So instead of being colonized by English and French, Dutch, Spanish, Germans, basically Western Europeans who enslaved people from Senegal to Angola. What if North America had been colonized first by Italians and Greeks and Turkish people, and they enslave folks, say, from South Africa instead of West Africa? Well, does this mean instead of, you know, like crappy Taco Bell, we would have good euros? <laughs> yes, maybe. <laughs> More importantly, malaria okay. isn't endemic in South Africa, but it is endemic in the Eastern Mediterranean Basin. Oh, okay. Okay, now I see it. So sickle cell would have to be a condition that was associated with the descendants of the Italians and the Greeks and the Turkish slave owners, and not with the descendants of the South Africans who were the enslaved. In this imaginary scenario, yes. Yeah. And that's what we mean when we say that sickle cell isn't a black disease. In this little thought experiment I just laid out here, we would actually be thinking of it nowadays as a white disease. Huh. So it's the, when you spell it out, it's the historical particulars of slavery. And then the fact that sickle cell was discovered in the U.S. around World War I that makes the story that we think that it is, that sickle cell is a black disease. And you should also talk about the social and political climate of World War I era United States. Oh, yeah. I mean, that was the height of Jim Crow and extrajudicial lynching and the rise of the second Ku Klux Klan and the passage of all those anti-interracial marriage laws. Right. So it's, it's not a surprise that once sickle cell was called a black disease by medical researchers during this time, it got kind of baked into the American psyche. Okay, so that's great. Now I get it. That's revolutionary. But I admit it takes people thinking about history. And physicians even are bad at thinking about history. Yes, physicians and scientists who are convinced of racial hierarchy just simply ignore the facts. All right. So that's the story of sickle cell. What do you think we should do for the next part of the... Wait, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Before we wrap things up, right at the beginning, I asked a question about how old sickle cell was. And Jim said there was this like enormous range for the age of sickle cell, like it could be as young as what we think of as human civilization, like 7,300 years ago, or it could be way, way older, 22,000 years old. So 
okay, Jim, you have to tell me, why is the spread on that so large? Are you willing to get out into the weeds a little bit here? Well, yeah. I mean, our thing is we explain race and science, so let's throw some science on it. <laughs> well, if we're tying up stuff that's more in the weeds, then I have a question to pile on to. Jim, I remember you saying that you taught that there were five separate points of origin for the sickle cell mutation in Africa and Asia? Yes, that was true a few years ago. Actually, to answer both of these questions, we have to go back, back, way back to 1995. <gasps> 1995. In 1995, America was introduced to the Restriction Fragment Length Polymorphism, or RFLP, in the O.J. Simpson trial. The juice, the juice got loose because nobody understood the DNA analysis technique the prosecution used to show that the blood and the fingerprints leaving the murder scene and on the glove were actually a one in a million match to O.J. But the, even though that's a fun and terrible story, what in the world does that have to do with sickle cell? We called RFLP test DNA fingerprinting back in the 1990s when that okay, trial was true. going on. It was a pretty good way of figuring out similarities and differences at the time, but our genomic sequence analysis has come a long way since then. Anyway, since starting in the late 1970s, researchers have used RFLP testing to define differences in the genetic sequences near the mutation spot for the sickle cell gene. Right around the time of OJ's trial, scientists had identified five different types of genetic sequences that were associated, they thought, with the sickle cell mutation. Yeah, that's what you said, that there were these five origins, and you said they were in India, Benin, Cameroon, Bantu, or Central African Republic, and Senegal. Yep, and the origin of the mutation was also thought to be very recent, within just the last few thousand years. Okay, so you're saying that all that stuff that we learned around the time that we learned that OJ was not guilty. You're saying that all that stuff has to be thrown out now? Hey, that's the science. We have new tools and new evidence, so our interpretations change. So it's exciting that within just the last 13 months, two papers have been published using newer genomic analysis instead of the cruder RFLP technique, and they suggest a couple of things. They suggest that the groups derive much earlier, there are more of them, and that they come from a single original mutation in Africa. How do they know that? The older studies found markers around the sickle cell mutation, but unfortunately, one of the things was that they weren't just limited to showing up with that sickle cell mutation. Those markers were also common with the A or normal type gene. In the newer study, the researchers found 20 different groupings of mutations around the sickle cell point that were highly associated with the sickle cell mutation. When they plugged those 20 groups into a family tree analysis, they showed how all the different combinations are derived from a single ancestral gene sequence. Uh, okay, so where does this much earlier shift in the DNA come from? Well, the oldest direct evidence of sickle cell comes from the genetic analysis of ancient Egyptian remains that date back over 5,000 years. The researchers in the more recent work also used Y-chromosome markers 
in their sample that have known ages to guesstimate an age close to 10,000 years ago for the origin of the sickle cell mutation. And then finally, their own direct estimations based on population genetic modeling of the mutations necessary to come up with the surrounding genetic sequences that led to that blossoming family tree of 20 different groups with the sickle cell mutation suggested an age of about 7,300 years for the mutation. Oh, wait Man, a second, though. I, 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 I get this, and this is using some archaeological stuff, so this makes sense. But, but I thought a second ago you said that one of the dates on the table was 22,000 years ago. So is it the 7,300 years or the 22,000 years? Well, uh, this is science, right? It's like making sausage, uh, <laughs> okay. speaking of. Yes. Yeah, Chris. That's the, and so there's a second study that was published just two months ago, again, looking at sickle cell in African hunters and gatherers this time. Remember, Livingston said it was spread with agriculture. Yeah. This study suggests that the mutation likely occurred about 22,000 years ago. They use slightly different assumptions about the way that the heterozygote advantage natural selection was working throughout time to model how long their family tree of different genomes would take to get back to a point of origin. They suggest that the mutation and its relationship to malaria substantially predates agriculture in the area, with fatal human malaria appearing to show up around 40,000 years ago in Africa. Both of the studies propose that sickle cells spread first through Central Africa and then to the Middle East and India, and then finally, last of all, to the European populations that Cooley was talking about in the 20s. And there's that selection pressure in those areas because of the threat of malaria. So the idea is the sickle cell gene increased in frequency once it got to those places. That's right. When it comes in, it's not just sickle cell anemia causing the gene to die out, but it's that sickle cell trait that gives them that resistance to malaria that allows them to get very high frequencies of sickle cell. In fact, in some Greek villages and some parts of India, we see higher sickle cell frequencies than we do in many parts of of even the malaria belt of Africa. Yeah, okay, so this shows us again that the fact that sickle cell gets associated with people of African descent and that it's thought of as a black disease in the United States, that this really is just an accident of very recent history. Exactly, and if you can get students to think about this and how changeable our ideas about race and biology are, especially if they miss the question about sickle cell and race and disease on the pretest, <laughs> then you can get them to really begin to focus on why race isn't biological instead of just the fact that it isn't biological. Yeah. And hopefully it's going to change some minds here as well, because our listeners are going to spread the word for us, right, listeners? Yay. We hope speaking so. Of, speaking of listeners, if you've had interactions with people over race and health stuff, we would love to hear from you about those or about this episode. Don't forget, you can find us on Facebook at SOR Podcast, on Twitter at Speaking of Race, and on Instagram at Speaking of Race too. I'm Jim, the physical anthropologist. And I'm Eric, the historian of science. And I'm Joe, the cultural anthropologist. Thanks for listening and check out our next episode where we'll continue this conversation of race and health. Thank you for listening. And then along came Jones. <laughs> <laughs>